Hi, this is Teresa Willard-Hughes, and this podcast is about 10 days late from our my scheduled events and when we were going to po- release podcasts. The reason for the delay is the virus. I live in one of the first six counties in the nation that we had a shelter in place. It was a shock. That happened on Monday, the March 16th. Everything was going okay that morning. Went out with one of my cousins. At about 4 o'clock, everything began to close down, and we got this notice. It's shelter in place. Didn't know what the hell it meant. Something about essential services. My definition of essential services at that point was I needed a haircut, and I needed my eyebrows done. And if I don't get my eyebrows done, again, this is being very shallow for my essential services. I look like an old woolly mammoth or a gray, you know, old caterpillar. Frida Kahlo and I would have a great deal in common as I would have a unibrow. But as time went on, I realized how scary this virus was or still is, looking at the number of people that have been infected, the number of people who are dying, families' lives have been upset and upturned. So I hope that you're all doing well. I hope that you're all doing the safe distancing. And I wish you all the best in the world as we go forward. We all need each other, and especially during this time. But I'm also worried about during this time period that and young children, especially who are now living at home, or women who have been with an abusive partner, the damage that could be done with them. We cannot forget that the violence will continue, even with this fever. So for today, what we're going to talk about on this podcast is a continuation of a conversation around rape culture. And we're going to talk about it in three different areas. One, we're going to talk about age. When does it occur? What happens nationally? And also how it lasts us a lifetime. And I'll give you an example with one of my aunts. The second one, we'll talk about the sheer volume of numbers of people that are being victimized across this country and how we in America think of ourselves as one of the most civilized communities in the world. But the reality, the, the amount of women that are raped in this country is at a level that none of us wants to talk about. But most importantly, we're going to talk about what is being done and how we can build programs or look at programs that are similar to ours, programs that are addressing women of color that are taking place throughout the world. Today, we'll be talking about a program that started in the Sierra Leone in 2018-2019 called Hands Off Our Girls. What's amazing about this program is that it was started, founded, and sanctioned by the president and the first lady of Sierra Leone. Imagine if our president did something like this. So let's get started. For us to really understand rape, childhood sexual violence, and incest, we really need to talk about the age of those being victimized. In Alabama, rape charges, it's a forceful sexual act against a young person under the age of 13, which means 12 and younger. Age 13, you're either in the 6th, 7th grade, depending on what schools you start at. Imagine the idea of that. I was 14. 
the first time my father raped me, and I was an eighth grader at Fremont Junior High School in Pomona. It just changed everything about who I was, being raped by my father, and it didn't stop. The violence continued. So I should give you a little more background. As you know, my father was a pedophile, and he raped his two younger sisters, one at the age of 11, the other when she was 14. My aunt, who was raped at 11, and I were friends years later in our lives. It took her 64 years for her to finally tell me what happened to her that day. 64 years later, she was 75 years old. She could still remember the dress that she had on. It was yellow and it had checks on it. She remembered the biggest thing was that what was she going to do? The absolute fear and the terror that she experienced as an 11-year-old. The shame she felt as her as her older brother raped her. What had she done wrong? But she and I talked over again 64 years later. It was one of the first times that she talked about being raped by her brother, my father. She was so filled with shame. Mind you, my aunt is one of the most, the most beautiful women you'd ever want to see. Gracious, tall, elegant, smarter than a freaking whip. She was just... Although she talked about herself in the third person a lot, she was a charmer. She was that woman that you wanted to be like, and I always wanted to be like her. And when she told me this truth, it broke both of us for years. We remained friends, but just how she felt and how she told me that for years she was terrified of my father. She was terrified of this bastard up until he died. She never wanted to be, if she had to be around her brother, she she had to make sure somebody else was there. She never wanted to be in a room with him. Imagine 64 years of that level of fear, and that's what she experienced. She never talked about it. She told Nana, which was her mother, my grandmother, that something happened. And Nana said to her, he has the moral turpitude of a sore rat. You were never to be around him, and he was banned from the family. He lived in the shadows, but he was never allowed around the people again. And the thing that I want you all to know is that my father's family are great people. They're absolutely wonderful, smart, charming, wonderful people. But I, like my Aunt Laverne, was so ashamed of what happened to me. I shied away from them. I did not want to be seen as someone that was violated by my father. I did not want them to look at me as if I was some type of outcast because my father impregnated me. I did not introduce them to my son. Why? Because of the shame. When you talk about rape and violence, it is the shame and the betrayal and the number of years lost that you could have with people that could help you. I looked at pictures that from my father's family of all the brothers, all at the same age, different slides, different pictures, and everybody looked normal, and they looked wonderful. And there is my father looking absolutely batshit crazy, but that's who he was. He was an evil man, and thank God to the universe that bastard is dead. So when he died... I asked my aunt if she went to the funeral. Of course, I didn't. I wasn't invited. Apparently, my threat from years earlier that when he died, I would attend a funeral, bring it a wooden stake to shove it into his heart, make sure he was really dead. I didn't get invited. Matter of fact, they didn't even have 
a dead body. They ended up cremating his ass. And I said, was he really dead? I could not believe that bastard could really die. And she said, oh, baby girl, he was really dead. I said, Deb, are there a lot of people? She said, no. And there was only very few people at that funeral. And there was my aunt, prouder than a peacock attending. And she said, baby girl, he was really dead. I sat right next to his dead, dry asses. I know he's dead. We celebrated. When we look at what happens to young kids early on, like with myself, my aunt, and other kids, it is that age of being 13, 14, 15, you're just developing your breasts. As young boys, you're just beginning to come into your own confidence. And when we're violated, the harm it does to us long-term. As this podcast goes on, we'll talk about what the long-term health care consequences are. Today, we'll talk about the economic consequences. Another time, we'll talk about economics. Rather, I'm sorry. We'll talk about the societal costs, self-medicating, the incarceration rate, especially of young boys. We will have those conversations because I think it's needed. And then we'll talk about something that we very seldom talk about. It's a whole new social media concept of how is driving rape culture and how those of us who are victimized are reshamed again often because of social media and how we are looked at being the one who has done wrong, not the predator. Somehow, once again, he gets off scot-free. So as we talk about age, one of the things that and I remember an article in 1997, there was an article by Alan Dorsiewicz that was in the L.A. Times in which he expounded, mind you, I don't like Alan Dorsiewicz, so just bear that part in mind, that he said that the whole idea of statutory rape of a girl who was 16 was irrelevant. Hello, Alan. Uh, someone who is raped at 16 I don't think she thinks it's irrelevant, but apparently he did. And he made this argument as if it was the right thing to do, that it was okay. He actually even proposed that the age limit should be reduced to somewhere between 14 and 15. Alan, I was 14, it ain't irrelevant, and being raped at 14 is no goddamn better than being raped at 16. It is still damaging. So 22 years later, the article was brought up again, and he once again, he defended it. That said that it was what he believed in, and he argued that it had to do with a constitutional rather than a moral. Alan, being rapist has not a goddamn thing to do with constitutional arguments. Being raped is a sexual violation of my body, my soul, and my mind. F the Constitution and this conversation. Throughout the world, especially communities of color, how rape culture is defined is femicide because what they look at is the number of women that are murdered, who are missing, who are kidnapped, who are raped, gender bias, domestic violence. All of those issues are looked at and they classify as femicide. We in the United States very seldom use that term. But there is a culture in this country that is very similar to those women who are victimized in other countries that talk about femicide. And that culture is not just about the violence, which we'll discuss in sure numbers in a moment, but it has to do with how police see us once we've been victimized. 
Here's what the court systems have allowed and the legislative policies. All of those things are a part of what happens to us. So when we define rape culture in this conversation, we're not only looking about the rape, the sexual violence, the long-term cost of it economically and socially, but also looking at how the police view us, and especially women of color or marginalized women, women who live in poverty, and then how are those cases brought forward? What is the legislative policies? How do laws are bad? How men are often been able to go down on lesser charges? We'll be looking at all of those aspects. But more importantly, we'll be wanting to have an understanding. Rape, childhood sexual violence, and incest is not about the sexual act. It's about all the long-term consequences that we have. But let's just start with the numbers of the United States. Imagine these numbers. Every 98 seconds in this country, a great someone is sexually violated. So if it, there's 86,400 seconds in a day in a 24-hour period, so somewhere around 880 people are sexually violated, of which 90% are women. 351 plus thousand are sexually violated annually. Hell, we're not even in a war zone. This isn't compact. This isn't rape and pillage the whole nine yards. This is just everyday women and men are being sexually violated in this country. And we're absolutely freaking silent about it. These numbers need to be talked about. The volume of the numbers. Imagine this other little factoid that women in the United States are twice as likely to be raped than they are to develop breast cancer. Look at all the screening programs that we have for breast cancer. Look at all the treatment and the cures that we have and how we all celebrate being cured from breast cancer and our fear that we have from breast cancer. But the realities are we're twice as likely to be raped. Ask yourself one, three simple questions. Were you ever raped? Were you ever sexually violated? Second question, do you know anybody that was? And we all know the answer to the first two. Yes, 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 for some area. But the third one is the one that part of the culture. How much of our lives do we fear being raped? What do we do to prevent being raped? Do we, how many of us don't go into a garage late at night? How many of us are constantly on guard? That level of fear is really what we talk about rape. And if we look at it in a different way, we can define it for what it is. It's a form of absolute terrorism. The other one that I think that we should look at is in 2000, September 2019, JAMA, the Journal of American Medical Association, submitted a report. And that report said that 3.3 million women in the United States between the ages of 18 and 44, their first sexual experience was that of coercion, being talked into rape or violently being raped. That is what we're talking about. Imagine 3.3 million women. The average age of the girl, hey, Alan, was 15. The average age of the man was 27. You look at that 12-year difference in what kind of power he had over her as a young girl. She doesn't know how to say no. She doesn't know how to be able to figure out, okay, maybe if I just go along with this, it'll be okay. 
Think about what you were at 15 and how you could not have managed that situation. But if you look at the number of 3.3 million, think about it from this standpoint. That is larger than the city of Chicago's entire population. Chicago is the third largest city in the United States. It has somewhere around $864 billion gross national product that it provides. Imagine what would happen to a city of that size if you look at what happens to us as women. If 80% of us develop some form of PTSD within the first two weeks of being sexually violent, for those of us who are of color, women of color, children of color, people living in marginalized communities and poor communities, we don't get just PTSD. We get what I call continued traumatic stress disorder. Crap just keeps on happening. You start adding our race to it. You start adding color to it. You start adding age. You start adding gender to it, sexual orientation, poverty levels. Crap happens. In this country, every eight minutes, CPS, Children Protective Services, reports, investigates, and substantiates a child has been victimized by childhood sexual violence. That's those that have been reported, substantiated. So let's not, those are the ones that they know about. But how many of those are children of color? We have no idea. We know that we don't talk about it. We know from marginalized communities, we sure in the hell aren't going to talk about it. And we were raised from very young children. You do not talk to CPS. You do not talk to the police department. So we don't know how many of our children have been victimized by childhood sexual violence. But what we do know, if we, even if we look at the eight, every eight minutes, in fact, 63,000 children are sexually violated in this country every year. That doesn't even include the number of 22 million young children, many of them when I say young, very young, under the age of 12 who are sexually violated from the worst kinds of ways, and their pictures and their videos of their violations are posted on, on the social media. And those pictures will remain there. Those videos will remain there for a lifetime for those children. We are being violated throughout this country, and nobody seems to give a rat's ass about us. But any time that you're looking at missing children, most of those children that you see are white children. No one talks about 40% of those children are children of color, African American, and black. How many of us are talking about the number of missing and, and murdered women of indigenous women? Not unless you know someone who's Native American or indigenous. We are being murdered, missing, raped, violated, and dismissed. Our voices aren't heard. And even when we talk about it, we ask for help, people choose not to see us. They are so damn concerned about who we are racially, who we are by color, what our poverty levels are. They choose in this country and around the world not to see us. That's why I developed Strong, Powerful, and Victorious, because we need to be seen. We need to be heard. So let's talk about those of us who are sexually violated and what that means from an economic standpoint. 
Studies show that if you are sexually violated as a child in this country, over your lifetime, you will lose somewhere around $241,000. Now, mind you, that's a hell of a lot of money to lose over a lifetime. But if you're a person that you're making $10 an hour, what will end up happening, that's 16 and a half years of your work life gone. Money that you've made that you'll never see, gone. If you're making $12 an hour, that's nine and a half years of your income gone, won't ever see. And if you're making $15 an hour, that's a little over seven and a half years gone wages. You're out there busting your hump, going back and forth to work for not a goddamn penny. It's money that you'll never get back. But what if you had that money? What could you possibly do with that extra $241,000? So let's just assume 10 people within the same zip code as young children were sexually violated. That's $2.4 plus million dollars of revenue, revenue, real life dollars that is not being brought into that community. Imagine if those dollars were. So from an economist standpoint, here are the things that you'll lose. We're talking about each of you will lose $241,000 as an individual, but as community, 2.4. Think about the sales tax and the stores that you would be shopping in that would remain in your community. Think about the bodega. Think about the grocery store. Think about the liquor store. Think about the gas stations. Think about the small shops, the small neighborhood businesses from people that look like you own those businesses that you're not able to support because that money is gone. Think about the schools that your kids could go to. Think about the books that you guys could buy. Think about the laptops that you're not able to afford. Think about the ease of your life. Think about the fact that you may not have to take public transportation. You could have your own car. Think about the fact that you could afford medication. Think about the things that you could do, but it's lost because some bastard raped you when you were a child. That is the money that is lost. That's economic loss that you will never get back. Boy Scouts, what, 6,600 predators that they know about? Statutory limits were lifted. They went under bankruptcy to protect them. Think about what the Catholic Church is doing with the diocese. Same thing. We don't have any protection. That's just money. Ours is gone. Hillary was running for president. She was talking about being able to reach the glass ceiling and the thousand points of light crackling in the glass ceiling. Most of us who have been victimized, and I could guarantee you anybody who's lost $241,000, they ain't worried about a damn glass ceiling. What they would like to be able to do is put a wonderful roof over their head, a home that is safe for their children, some place that they could go where they could feel safe, they could cook dinners, they could laugh, and they could have a life, they could build a future. They just want great shelter and safety. So that is what is happening in this country, and it's what's happening to women of color. So let me tell you about a program that I think that we should all think about and look into. And Sierra Leone, for 12 years, was under a civil war that was just dreadful. People were being murdered, the machetes left and right. But out of that tragedy, there came a new president. The president's name is Julian Biel. Bio, I think I'm pronouncing it right, and I apologize if I'm not. It's B-I-O. And has the first lady, Fatima. 
And they developed a program because what they recognized that was what we don't in this country, that their girls are the economic engines of the future of their community. We as women in this country of color are the economic engines in our communities as well. But we aren't valued for that. We aren't thought about. It's time that we think about ourselves as economic engines and the value and the worth that we put into our communities. So in this program that the, the First Lady and the President of Sierra London, it's called Hands Off Our Girls. Why is that important? Because young girls were being raped left and right. They got involved. They were forced into early marriages. They weren't able to finish school. And what the President and the First Lady of Sierra Leone realized, in order for their country, their community, to be able to prosper and to grow, they needed a program that said, hands off our girls. And it's now it's been in place. It started in 2019, and it's going forward. And what they do is they actually prosecute and in, put in jail men who rape young girls. Imagine that. Imagine if we had that in our country. Imagine if we we thought about who we were as people of color, as women of color, not as a victim, not as somebody as a survivor, but the dynamic engine of who we are the primary parent for our children, sometimes for our parents, oftentimes within our community. We are the economic engines that keep our communities focused. And we should recognize that who we are, we are valued. And if, we, if somebody else doesn't value, we should learn to value ourselves. I want to thank each of you for listening. I will post five questions on our website, and I want to be able to thank each of you for listening to me. You take care and stay healthy and keep with the social distancing. God bless. Take care. Peace.